Welcome back to Hearness, where we acknowledge the deep connection to land by First Nations people all around the world. And we aim to deepen the connection, respect and care for the land by all people through contemporary art practices for connecting body, place and space. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Breenlovett, and this month we have the pleasure of speaking to Jacqueline Spedding. Jacqueline is a visual artist based in the Blue Mountains, whose practice spans ceramics, sculpture, installation and drawing. Jacqueline's work connects to the idea of hearness through her deep connection to materials and processes, including gathering and collecting found objects and organic materials. Jacqueline has research interest that focuses on interconnectedness with all things and acknowledges the life force and processes of deep time that connects everything in an alchemical way, shifting from the material to the metaphysical. I've always found your work evokes feelings in me of kind of loss and like a sadness and a kind of a returning, a folding into the earth, like a, I guess a decaying or a folding into the earth. And then, but it has like a potential of a rebirth. I don't think it's actually intentional. I think it's something that's just been present in my work ever since I started making. I mean, I'm certainly always been drawn to uh, the beauty of decay. It's just the the materiality that's revealed over time. And so, so I think that is present in the work, but it often comes through even when I don't really perhaps want it to. And I think I've just embraced it over the years that it's just present in the work and it's probably something that when I'm working with whatever material I'm working with, but I trained primarily in ceramics or in ceramics, I think it's definitely something that I've learned to enhance or bring out and because I find the beauty in it. So I always am drawn back into that. I guess going along just for a second longer on, yep. the, on the dark stuff, I don't know how to pronounce it, Lois. 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 Yeah, that was my master's exhibition. I've never yeah. seen that word before. What does that mean? It's a beautiful word. It means um, the layering of um, sediment that form over geological time. It looks like a domestic setting where, um, you know, time has taken over, something's happened in this place, it looks like there's been a fire um, it looks like it's wrapped bodies or something on the bed. I'm not sure. The listeners really should have a look at the images on the website and I'll put some on, on as well, the links on, on our website. But you can smell the images by looking at them. Do you know? Like yeah. It's like you can smell this tar. I don't know if you know if you're working with tar Was it um, and charcoal, but you can smell the images. And I hadn't. Your work is always very visceral and material, but this work here, just seeing these images, struck me as it's so extremely um, 
material? Well, one, the, the exhibition spaces at Sydney College of the Arts were, were very charged spaces anyway because it's an, old, um, it's an old mental asylum. It is, I was very interested in materiality and material processes and the, the real potential of the material to just express itself beyond any kind of form or um, um, object necessarily. And, and I wasn't working with tar, but I was working with charcoal. And in this current work, I think that's moved on to coal um, itself. They're all in a line of um, material <laughs> history of trees, aren't they really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. So when you're, when you're working with, um, with ceramics and I guess you start with clay, and do you, the way that you fire it and you process it, do you do, you do it in such a way that it, that it kind of is not totally fired and sealed so then there's the potential for the breakage or the kind of the decayed look when you, when you kind of take it out? I guess I'm thinking about the um, transcend work, the sculpture at Scenic World, the winner 2014 um, of the Acquisitive Award. Yeah, that work definitely. Um, I, there's two aspects to that question. One is, yes, I low fire. Um, I partly do that from an environmental point of view. I've become, well, anyone that works in ceramics, you become really conscious of the permanence of it and the fact that we're still digging it up, you know, millennia after <laughs> it's been made by someone in Egypt or Greece or whatever. I think sometimes the weight of that is just very heavy. And so, um, I decided to, to limit myself to a, an earthenware range. So it is more porous. It's not as um, rock-like as stoneware or porcelain. Um, and the potential, it, it, does, it does mean that it's more fragile. That's true. Um, most of it is natural. So I brought in um, some terracotta that had been pre-fired and ground up and it actually, references ground itself in the work as well because they're pot they're a humble garden pot shape and they're normally terracotta but I wanted to evoke that shape as um, a very common everyday shape that we're all familiar with but as something that's breaking down and becoming there's that that transformation from um, the pot to the plant to the plant to the pot you know and then it's fossilized almost in the firing process so um, I, I'm very interested in humble everyday objects, things, any, anything that is overlooked, easily overlooked and walked by. And I guess um, if, if I can introduce that idea of heaviness, the when I've contemplated um, that in my practice, so much of it is about um, walking and observing. And I you know, I struggle to look up. I'm always looking down, looking at my feet, looking around when I'm walking and, uh, and gathering things as I go. So I think my, my kind of, my practice is really about collecting and, and, you know, collecting items that are just by the wayside. So walking from my house to my studio and always gathering things. So that would be um, just, you know, leaves or dead things that I found or shells or um, and then things that are cast off by people in their waste. You know when you're walking being totally absorbed in being where you are 
and sit, you know, you're really looking at everything, you know, you're kind yes. of scanning like a scanner. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I think that feeds into kind of reoccurring theme of the, the domestic objects that you obviously pick up from doing this and that come in, comes into your work. I'm just wondering, because I was looking um, at the work from 1996, yes. Tender Cruelties. I'll just describe it for the listeners. There's a, um, I, I'm assuming you've made this ceramic sink um, yes. with ceramic taps and yes. hair, beautiful long hair flowing out of one of the taps like water. Um, and it's just, it, it really, it kind of echoes the sentiment. You say bathrooms and bodies are locked together in daily rituals bathrooms are particularly charged spaces you know there's this very um, volatile interaction between the waste that you're shedding and then the water and the the space that hard ceramic space so um, I was really interested in that as a charged psychological space but also you know as a ceramicist it's it's the um, it, it has a lot of um, ceramic surfaces in it as well I'd never really thought of that relationship of this shedding and then this kind of taking on of the water and the cleansing and then this shedding, like it's like this mm. uh, interconnectivity between you and your domestic environment on a kind of a, a deep level, you know, when you really think about it and the intimate, very intimate level. Yes. I think I, I studied, I went to Sydney College of the Arts when I was 22, um, so in the early 90s, and I was very influenced by, um, well, installation art was really, really at its, not zenith, but it was definitely a predominant way of thinking about making at that time. And feminist art theory was really influential to me. So um, Elizabeth Gross uh, wrote a book called Volatile Bodies. And in that she talks about the libidinal space that surrounds the body and how we incorporate objects into the body and then we also um, become part of those objects. So one of the analogies she uses is, um, and I'm not sure if, it, if she's quoting somebody, I can't remember or whether she said this herself, but if you imagine sitting on a chair, when you sit on a chair, you your spine extends down into the legs of the chair, you become part of that structure and it becomes part of you. And I was really interested in exploring that relationship between our bodies and objects and where the body stops and the object begins and I think it's really informed a lot of my practice since since then it just really brought home to me how, um, how much we are part of the object world and how much the object world is part of us and um, it extends your body out into a world out into the world in a way that we're often just so we take it so for granted we don't consider it when we get in a car how that that changes our bodies completely we are a cyborg once we're in the car but we don't think about ourselves in that way but really we are it's, it becomes a almost like a prosthetic around us um so i was really interested in that and the way we attach significance to um to objects that we hold on the body all the time so like a ring everyone can relate to that if you wear a ring and you wear a ring and then the ring's gone you still palpably feel that ring in the same way that or in a different way but similar way to if you lose a limb there's a, a lot of discussion around phantom limb and people who have had amputations still have 
um, sensations of that limb, even though it's not there. So um, with the bathroom, I, I was really interested in extending that beyond beyond um, immediate objects into spaces. And I think that was the, that was when I became really interested in installation art and how the body opens up to objects and spaces. Yeah, and I think because you're kind of reading this absence, like there's these kind of clues in that work um, in Tender Cruelties, there's these clues of the human interaction with it, but then there's these impressions of the human. Um, are they little soap dishes? Yes. The human and there's like a chair which you which is broken and you couldn't sit on um but you kind of can imagine sitting in you know you can the mind kind of sits on there in its kind of tenuous position yes. that it's in and um did you make the bathtub there's a it looks like yeah. a full-size bathtub yes it is <laughs> <laughs> that was challenging we had it was the biggest kiln we had at the time and I, I had to um I had to carve off a bit of the end of it to close the door the first one blew up um and so that was actually the second one that I made just while we're on the notion of the domestic I guess another reoccurring thing that I'd like to just touch on is the idea or the usage of bound drawers um oh, yes. because that was obviously in the shadow weave exhibition in 2014 that we did together mm. um but also in the the in the big c exhibition the work that you made for that displaced um both of them that you kind of use these found drawers um mm. in in the work and i guess i was just wondering do the drawers signify something to you they certainly um go back to that earlier time i was interested in um well, when I wrote my master's paper, Phenomenology, and, you know, Gastion Bachelard's uh, Poetics of Space has, has always, I've always loved that book. I could read it over and over again. And it's just that, that again, it's that extension of um, domestic um, space or objects that hold particular significance for us as, as humans in the way that we experience the world. And the, the first work you mentioned, it was more to do with um, more to do with the domestic space and and playing on that idea of a museum cabinet, but but more of an oversized set of drawers and um, enlarging the small things that you might find in the drawer, like the dust or a little moth or something. So the drawers then um, encompassed gigantic versions of those small things, um, and I suppose domestically that has that has a sense of loss because the drawers are empty there they had you know kind of aging paper in them like you might find you know in a, um you know drawers that you clean out after someone dies that's that sort of thing so there's definitely that aspect to that work the other work related particularly to a dressing table that I was given by my father and it was made by my grandfather and um his uncle had um, chosen a tree for him and they'd, they'd felled it and brought it back on a bullock train to um, Lismore where it was um, milled and then he made it into this bedroom suite as a wedding present. I'd always had this idea of my grandmother as being this very gentle person and she was, um, she was also a collector and I was quite startled when my uncle told me that she would collect things um, all the time every time she was out of the house she'd come home with things and she used to crochet little um, 
little doilies for them to sit on. He said the whole hallway was just full of like these found objects that she had. And what I found was my family, my northern family were involved in the removal of the old growth forests in the in the Richmond Valley. And that's a very that's a hard thing to live <laughs> to live with, knowing that they were part of that land clearing and the loss of land for the local indigenous people up there. And um, and that kind of um, so the big sea environment has evidence of um, timber getters that moved through that area, and they were this you know they would come in and they would cut down these old growth turpentine trees because turpentine is water resistant, and it actually all those um, majestic trees make up the pylons around Sydney Harbour in all the old wharf buildings and things because they just don't rot. They they they're so um, such strong trees. And there's evidence all over the property at Big C and the neighbouring property of the timber getters huts and um, and things. So um, I chose this one particular stump that was near a creek and um, decided to um, do a work that was based on the dressing table that I have and all the drawers. And I wanted it to be um, an offering in a way, filling it with water, but also the drawers with water, but also I think it's, you know, it was a bit like tears, you know, the tears of the, the loss of the tree and the loss of that environment. And, and so it became like all the drawers that I'd collected over the years, I just found that I was able to, to bring him into that site and then work on, you know, an arrangement of them around that stump. And, um, and it was beautiful because I lined them with wax and they, they held the water and you got all the beautiful reflections of the trees around that stump in the, in the drawers. Like that work, I think, you know, really epitomises um, a couple of the other works where the, the domestic and the outdoors are kind of together with one overtaking the other. Um, I don't know whether they're dystopic or <laughs> whether, you know, whether to yeah. see them as dystopic or whether to see them as just a natural cyclical yeah. relationship between the two worlds. Yes, I know, I know what you're saying because in my current exhibition, um, the the original idea for it was um, the remnants of a a room well a room where the house around it has disintegrated and disappeared so you're just really left with the hearth you know often you you'll go through the countryside and the bush or whatever and you'll see chimney stacks that's a very common thing that you can that you find where the rest of the house is weathered away and you just have um you just have that remnant of that domestic space that used to exist but now it's just part of the environment around it and I think living in the Blue Mountains certainly made me extend that thinking beyond just the relationship of the body to objects to built environments into natural environments and walking walking between you know my house and the studio you literally walk between the threshold of the the built environment and the um, wild environment of the national park which just surrounds us everywhere this sea of trees which is so so beautiful um, and so that transitional space between buildings you know as bodies in the landscape you know that extension of the body to the built and into the wild is really 
something. And, it, and I guess that it does have a dystopic aspect to it because, you know, when we see an abandoned building or an abandoned space, I think there's a real sense of melancholy, but there's also a sense of fascination with it. Um, it's also something that is very unsettling because it, it really is the, the disintegration of our protection from the environment. You know, we build houses for security and safety and um, and when you see an abandoned house, there's a kind of fascination with all what happens to that space once it's weathered and, and the humans have disappeared, nature takes over. And it does remind us, because often it happens so fast. If you look at um, some of the areas around the US where um, communities have been devastated by cyclone and have moved on or whatever, the houses are there, but just, the nature takes over so quickly and it becomes, um, it's, it's, it really reminds us of our transience, but it also echoes this kind of deep time. The, the, world, the world moves in, this, in, in a deep time and we move in this fleeting moment within that. And um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely there. I think there's a, a, I hope though, that there's some release from that sense of dystopic or loss or um, breaking down because if there isn't, what do we have? If we if we are left in that space of um, the loss, we never we can't we can't grow from mm -hmm. it. And in the current work, that the fireplace piece, the renewal is in the tiles that I've done around the the fireplace. I think it's um, well they're green, so that 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 in itself is new shoots, new beginnings. But um, yeah, some uh, path out. I think I feel that the there's definite hope in the work like it's not all a, a dystopia I think part of the hope is also that surrendering to just not to that more than human thing of, of things being more important than us or us not being the um, the most important yeah. thing here um, and yeah. that gives me hope to to see it in a more of a balanced you know um, mm. but I think the power in the work is really like you said I think you say um forces beyond human reach you know we can consider ourselves within those forces that are outside of we can't control them and that's yes. what the work it's biome at the blue mountains cultural center is yeah. you know that kind of deals with doesn't it really yes and that's such a um that's it's really great to hear you reflect that back to me because i think that is very much there is a surrender to it definitely and um and that understanding that we are just, you know, an element within it. And, and um, I think that's so important. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting to hear that reflected back. <laughs> Sometimes your work, it really transcends into that. Um, it's, it's not the everyday, it's the truly domestic that it looks like it's not an artwork, it is an, a domestic object there. I'm trying to look at the overlooked all the time. Well, I'm not trying, I am looking at the overlooked all the time and to make something that you really need to spend time with and enter into is important. And I, and so I think, I think it is challenging sometimes to exhibit because it can um, recede and I found working in, often I've worked in, 
you know, unusual environments like rainforests and historic houses. And um, it's where the relationship between the objects and the environment, I suppose, um, are really in conversation with each other. This exhibition was really different for me because it was a, 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 a gallery space. Well, we, while we're mentioning this, Shelter 2014-15, the beautiful cicada shells at the Woodford oh. Academy also speaks of that kind of it's not overseen, but there's such tiny little details in the space, in the domestic space. They're so beautiful and delicately made and just placed in a way that's like they naturally came there. Like you have a way of placing objects um, that makes it look like it was always there. Do you know? Yeah, thanks. It's, so. really, it's really beautiful. And I think... Yeah, it just kind of speaks to that, the power of the kind of the subtlety of the work. I think it's it's part of the um, the charm of it, really. Just speaking while we're on the Woodford Academy, I think the last two pieces I wanted to touch on um, were 2000, both made in 2017, the Echo Call exhibition that you did with Freedom Wilson um, mm. and the work that you made for Explorers Narratives, Narratives of Sight by Map Blue Mountains. Yep. Um, the Skyscapes work. And the yes. thing about both of those is this idea of rubbing, rubbing um, on, the, on the buildings and on the pavements around the Woodford Academy um, mm. as a way of making the work and exploring the space. And I love this statement can I read it what you said sure. <laughs> what you said because I can imagine you do I can just imagine it so you say nose to the ground the marks on the stones form abstract landscapes reminiscent of images of the surface of the moon as I press thick wet blotting paper onto the stones and peeled it back soft blisters and faint scars appear embossed on the drying paper they suggested landscapes and constellations, swirling black holes on one side and rough terrain on the other. They brought to mind the bent backs and bruised knees of the servants tasked with scrubbing the stones clean, the agitation of water and the sand deepening the already weathered marks. I just, I guess I wanted to, because I, I guess I've experienced that myself when you're making a work in a place that you, your nose is to the ground making it. Mm. I find it quite intoxicating. Mesmerising. Yeah, it's quite mesmerising. You could mm. do it for hours. You yes, know? yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, <laughs> I literally did, yeah. So I just guess I wanted to talk a bit about your experience of making those works in the building um, that you've worked with a few times, well, lots of times now. Um, yeah. And how, that how, just fascinates me. Sorry, what was how? Oh, just how, I guess... How does it how does it feel or is it the process of making it and being up close to the building like that? Um, mm -hmm. is that is that part of the joy of making the work for you? Yeah, I think it is. It's funny because when I go when I go to see exhibitions, especially um, when I go to museums and look at um, paintings, I need to go up close. I need to I almost feel like I want to put my nose to the canvas just not just to smell it but to see. The hand in the making, the the brush strokes, the the textures, the way you know the gestures, and 
And so it's like that 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 instinct to go up close and really absorb those details. It's compelling, and the building because because the building was handmade by stonemasons, and that you the punch marks of their tools are the little um, pox that are revealed over time. I mean they 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 start off as a as a signature pattern that each stonemason has. So as you walk around the building, you can see whether it's a different hand has made different blocks. And it's just that weathering that's happened over time and how it has, how it has completely transformed that stone. And you will be familiar in Australia, you go out into the bush and you see these amazing sandstone rock formations where, the, where water and sand have agitated. And it's just, they look like waves in the, you know, in the bush and it's quite, it's astonishing that that deep time etching of um, of material, and I'm just fascinated by it. I really could just spend hours and hours. I could get lost in those little wormholes of um, making and um, exploring because you you can't help it. It's the same when you're in a museum and you pick up a um, an ancient pot and you see the fingerprint of the person who made it and you're trans you know if you put your finger there you're touching that person through deep time again or human time I should say um, and I find that just endlessly fascinating that connection between makers and objects and materials you know that that particular place is very charged and I know you've spoken about it with Honora Ryan when she did her work at the academy it's got such a deeply layered history it's a bit like Lois that's the layers of time that have just been bedded down in that place through all the different occupations and those stones become a transcript of that time and of each foot that stepped on it and wore it down and when you when you are nose to the ground and your face is right in it you and you see the the depth of those undulations of stone that have been worn by feet you think about all the feet all the people that stepped there and um yeah it's it's humbling but it's also lovely to raise that humble thing to something turn it into something else mm. yeah i really like I really enjoyed your description for that reason, like your very, you know, corporeal response to the space and to the making and then your mind going back to who was there before and what had happened there before and mm. how that had all formed. Um, yeah. I don't know, do you want to talk a bit about the that work in terms of the, the skyscape? and the bringing together of the, of the enlightenment and the indigenous knowledge systems. Yeah, that was, that was fascinating. So one of your other guests, um, Chris Tobin, that you've had on um, Hearness, he gave a um, talk, not as introductory talk, I suppose, to all the artists when we first went to the space. I mean, I was already familiar with the space, but we had a meeting there and he, we sat around the, the, the tree there and we listened to um, his accounts of um, Indigenous occupation, not occupation so much, but Indigenous presence in that area and the way um, the, the constellations um, and one of the things, the, the way that they, the Indigenous knowledge systems 
think of constellations and this just stuck with me and I, I realised afterwards it was quite well-known knowledge but it wasn't well-known to me and I guess I was embarrassed that I didn't know that either but it's becoming, I love that it's just becoming more and more and more mainstream, the, the ways of thinking that are so ancient. But he said that the Indigenous um, people of Australia look at the space between the stars, the space that they enclose that actually is the meaningful shape to them. And I, I, I've just not been able to stop thinking about it. It's just such a completely different way of thinking about the universe and thinking about the sky above us. Um, and so beautiful. And the colonisation by the Europeans came about because Cook was sent to, to map the transit of Venus from the Southern Oceans. And from the Southern Oceans, through those calculations, they were able to um, calculate how far away the earth was from the sun or the moon I can't remember all the details now um, you know we, we looked outwards first and then then we've come into the microscopic kind of world and we, we can find those constellations inside ourselves as well if you look at neuro neurological images of the brain and things it's like it's amazing it looks just like the, the universe looks you know no, I think I love that macro, you know, the, the microcosm of you with your nose on the ground and then the macrocosm of these knowledge systems in the stars that we don't even know, we don't even yes. understand the way they work really, do you know, yes. and yeah, how, yeah. You, how you try to bring those two together in the work. Um, mm. is, there, is there an underlying kind of metaphysical side to your work that, that you, you'd like to talk about or that we haven't spoken about? Not so much seeing a deity involved in the world so much as um, the understanding of the metaphysical in the material. So you look at coal, coal is the most stunning material. It's, it's so, it sparkles, it's got this blackness that is just so black. It's just the most amazing, um, it's super heavy, it's, it's like, you know, it's fossilised trees from, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. It, it's quite, a, it's, it's, a, it's a truly extraordinary and captivating material. I could just, I just, it's no wonder we were fascinated with it and the heat and the warmth that it brought and the, you know, that changed our world entirely. It's, it's, it's a magical material. It's, it's become this very vilified material, but it's, it's actually really, really rich and beautiful. Um, so it's more about recognising that in a material. I think what you're saying, it's really starting to come clear for me in your work it's like the way that you work so deeply with the materials it's almost like the kind of alchemy of that brings rise to the history of where the material came from what might have happened at that time how did that happen in the process of making what might be happening for the person that's viewing it it's like all these stories around it um, mm. through the intense materiality they're born do you know? And, and mm. that's amazing, isn't it? Like that's amazing that you can take something, piece of clay, and you can do some things to it. You can make it look in a certain way that it really draws people in to wonder these things, you know? About the material itself. Yeah. 
one of the things I did think about talking about was the what if. And I think what if is is the curiosity and the question that that drives me to explore and play. So especially in relation to materials, it's what if I do, what if I add this to this, or what if I do this to this? And um, certainly there were different makers in my life that have made that have influenced me in that but the play of the material play and the material possibility drive a lot of what I'm doing and where I want to go in the future in terms of experimenting with either the the you know the use of things or using a different using a technique that might belong to one material and trying it with a different material and seeing what happens and then in that space letting the work emerge from within that space. So if there is metaphysics in my work, I think the metaphysics is more in the um, embodied energy of different materials and what they say about the, where they are from and then how they interact with the artist and the energy that they bring in the space that they bring to that work. So it's always to me a conversation of materials and processes and, and place inevitably influences that, but I'm not sure that I see it in terms of a, um, an overriding spiritual um, moment, but more a kind of metaphysical in the sense of beyond the known, beyond the um, understandable, beyond beyond the the human knowledge system and some something that is intrinsic in all life and in all material. I mean all material is a remnant of life somewhere along the line. So it's it's that conversation between materials and practices and processes that really fascinates me and pushes me. And I hope I can develop my art through that. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Jacqueline Spedding. All details for this episode are included on the website hearness.org. You can also follow along in our social media for the month to see more images of Jacqueline's work. We shall now leave you to drift off into your own sense of hearness with Jacqueline's sound recording of a mechanical music box from her biome exhibition. The music box has a miniature tree that rotates to somewhere over the rainbow. For Jacqueline, this song has always represented a longing to escape into other imagined worlds and the inevitability that we must experience longing and loss alongside the joys of everyday life. Until next full moon, goodbye.